Ah, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here. It's always such a difference when you've been sitting there and you come here and you see all the faces. It's glorious, isn't it? Beautiful thing. When uh, Joel Nicholas was sharing the word here a few mornings ago, he mentioned that the psalm that he was preaching on, which was Psalm 127, was his favourite psalm. And this morning, this is my favourite psalm, 131. I'm not sure whether it's its brevity. Well, I know it's not just the brevity. I think this is just the most beautiful thing. And um, Matt's already read it for us. But before we come to it, just a little bit of interest in the way it's placed in the Bible. Um, when Bob Bishop was sharing with us about Psalm 116 a few more weeks back, he happened to mention that Psalm 119 is an acrostic um, poem. So it, it runs through all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, one after the other, with um, 22 verses each, I think, together forming the biggest chapter in the entire Bible at 176 verses long. It's really big. And if you've ever been reading through the Bible in a year, the morning that you come to that one is a slow morning. You don't want to be rushing for a bus or anything like that because it's very, very long. And it is a, an exhortation to obey the Word of God. And it talks in... It, it really just circles around and around and around and around again on the value and the benefit and the blessing of obedience to God's word. And it talks about precepts and principles and laws and commandments. And it, it, it's just an exhortation to obedience. It's very, very strong. And then there is a very, very sudden change of tone because the next 15 chapters of Psalms, so following 119, which is the longest chapter in the whole Bible, the next 15 are called the Songs of Ascent. And they're very, very different. They're, they're quite short. They average around eight verses long. And three of the Songs of Ascent are among the four shortest chapters in the whole Bible, having only three verses. And ours is one of those. And rather than being um, that exhortation to obedience, which Psalm 119 is, these songs of ascent are a light. They're mostly very optimistic and positive, and they are an invitation into the house of the Lord. They are thought to have been sung by pilgrims making their way towards Jerusalem, to, towards the temple for feasts. And that's why they're called the Songs of Ascent. And that title, Songs of Ascent, isn't a modern label they've been given. In the Bible, as you read it, you'll see it's there at the top of each one. And that's because that phrase was in the Hebrew, um, in the original texts of the, of the Psalms. Where Psalm 190 has got this rigorous sort of, um, it's prescriptive, it's it's given to us as a command. These psalms, the psalms of uh, songs of ascent, are much more welcoming and warm, and they're really quite beautiful. I recommend you read them all at some point. There's also a thought that the Levite priests would have sung one psalm 
for every one of the 15 steps that led up into the great temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. And they would have sung one entire one of these, relatively short, but sung a psalm on every step as they went up. Now this, this is interesting because if you can picture this in your mind, imagine, we've probably all seen a picture of Solomon's temple. I haven't brought one to show you, but you know, it's a very, very grand edifice, isn't it? It's a big and glorious building. And if you can imagine the day of the, the dedication of the temple, so the first time it was completed, King David had wanted to build a temple for the Lord and the prophet Nathan had said, no, it's not, it's not for yours to do, but your offspring will. And David on his deathbed commissioned Solomon, build the house of the Lord. And Solomon built this enormous, grand thing. And the day of dedication would have been a spectacular ceremony, celebration. The priests were, were organised in their Levitical robes and they made an ascent towards the temple and then up the steps and they had with them the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant goes right back to Moses and Aaron and it, it is the place that God's presence inhabits. As they travel through the Exodus story, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night those were over the actual Ark of the Covenant. So it's the, it's the holy relic of, of Israel and they're carrying it on long poles to be placed inside the temple in the Holy of Holies. And there is this really curious verse. It's in um, 1 Kings chapter 8 and I'll read it to you. It just says, in the context of the description of the, of the celebration of the, the new temple, there was nothing in the ark except the, the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. This is the Ten Commandments inscribed on two stone tablets. And Moses had put them into the ark that the Lord had commanded him to make. But it says there was nothing in there except those two. Well, that's really, I've always wondered about this. There ought to be two more things there, and they are Aaron's staff that had budded. There was a, a moment where all of Israel needed to, to know who the, which, which of the 12 tribes would the priests be, and there was a sort of a, a bit of a tussle around that, and so they put a staff for every tribe in the tent of meeting overnight, and when they went back in the morning, Aaron's staff had had sprouted stems, leaves, flowers, buds, even almonds, it says. Quite, you know, a spectacular miracle. That should have been in the Ark of the Covenant. And so also there, there was at one point a pot made of gold which was full of manna. The Bible doesn't say any more about this, where they went. It's just not there. But it's so curious and I always feel as though it's awfully sad because those two things, the, the staff and the, the, the um, cup of manna, they speak about God's presence through the priesthood and his miraculous provision through manna. These things are about God dwelling with us and his intimate relationship with us, his presence with us and his provision for us day by day. But they're gone. 
they're not in there. And although the Bible doesn't give us any explanation about this or, or, or anything at all, it strikes me that it's awfully sad. And it reminds me that there's a, there's a slide that seems natural among human followers of God. There's a slide away from the intimacy of relationship and towards obedience only and eventually towards legalism. And it seems to be a, a pattern that, that you can find often in, in movements even. Um, have you ever heard that saying that uh, um, you begin with a... Um, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't, there's M's. It's gone from my head. But you, you move from somebody who has a, a, a wonderful prophetic insight and then that becomes a movement and then finally all you've got left at the end is a monument and two, two centuries later the, 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 the prophet is no more than sort of a legalistic code. And so something within us drifts away from the, the beauty and the joy of intimate relationship with God and towards just obedience. Obedience is important. Deuteronomy was so clearly um, a call to the Israelites, the whole book of Deuteronomy, to obey God. And if you obey, these are the blessings that will follow. We do obey God, but we don't only obey God. We love God. We live with God. God inhabits us. God is here with us. God is in our midst. And that's where Psalm 131 begins because it is not a... It's not a psalm that instructs us about what we believe. And we, we spend a lot of our time in our head, don't we, thinking about what it is that we believe. Psalm 131 doesn't talk to us specifically about who we believe either. What it talks to us about is how we believe. And I love that because I think it's a lot harder to talk about how we believe, but we need to do that. We need to talk to each other and encourage each other in the practices of being a Christian. What does it mean to follow Jesus? How do you actually do that? What is there to it beyond coming to church on a Sunday and going to home group and reading your Bible in the morning? There's much more, and it's good to share that with each other and nourish each other's spiritual life. So let's read it, Psalm 131, a song of a sense, a psalm written by David. Open your Bible up if you've brought it. There should be a deafening rustle right now of pages. I can't hear it. Did you ever do this? When you think back to, to when we all had Bibles. Do you remember when we all had big fat Bibles? I've got this huge Bible at home, and I, it's really great because it's got so much stuff written in it, but it is enormous you, just to pick it up. But we all had them, didn't we? And we had those special little bags that they all lived in. And, and then when the, when the pastor says, open your Bibles and you hear all the pshhh, did you, did you ever just go like that and pretend that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, I just know where that is. Did you ever do that? <laughs> never, never, ne really. I've done that heaps of times. Because <laughs> you don't want to be that, that last rustler, you know? Everybody else is there and you're still going. 
Okay, so I've given you time now. You should have it open. Let's read it. Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or with things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. So the verse that we begin with, the first verse, it's, it's like a statement of David's humility. Well, it is that. But don't misunderstand it. My heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty. Haughty is a word we don't use very much anymore. Another translation says, I do not lift my eyes too high. In other words, he doesn't have an inflated view of his own importance. Um, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Now, this is important because you could feel as though he's expressing a sort of a false humility, um, saying, I'm just, I'm just a nobody. I wouldn't know anything about that. But you've got to remember, he, he may not be a king at the time he writes this. It's a little uncertain, but he probably is. He probably is the king already um, of both uh, Israel and Judah, the king of the joined king, the United Kingdom of Israel. So when he says, I don't concern myself with great matters, well, the king does concern himself with great matters, doesn't he? And things too wonderful. Really, one of the perks of being the king is that you get to stick your nose into all the great and wonderful things. So he's not, he's not expressing a false humility or that idea of or I'm just nothing, because that's not what humility is. Humility is, an, is a true appreciation of, of who God has called you to be, neither too high nor too low. It's not proud, but neither is it a false humility. What he's really saying is that he doesn't let his mind worry anxiously at problems that are not his concern. I think that's the best way of explaining that. He's not allowing his mind to wrestle anxiously with the things that don't concern him. David is a king, but he recognises that he's not the king. So he leaves to God the things that belong to God and, and takes for himself only the things that belong to him. Now we come to the core of the psalm and this verse, verse 2, really, if you, if you grasp this, I think you get the psalm. I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And this is the invitation into the spiritual life. When my family were young, we once had a, um, a milking cow, a house cow, and it was a glorious period in our life because if you've ever had a cow, you have so much milk, like easily 10 litres a day, just buckets of milk. And we had a big family and so you can make, Karen would make stacks of stuff out of milk, custard especially, and the kids could drink as much milk as they like. And we had a cow and the cow's name was Bonnie, Bonnie the cow. And we had a horse and the horse's name was Silver. So Bonnie the cow, Silver the horse. The problem was that Silver was 
a truly terrible horse, an ex-pony club horse. Does that tell you enough? Pony, pony club, the notion of a pony club is that horses and people work together to teach youngsters how to ride. That's the notion of a pony club. The, actual, the actuality of a pony club is that horses learn how to terrify children. <laughs> and, and Silver was so far down this path that she was a, a really damaged horse. <laughs> and Silver could... Silver knew immediately, didn't even need to sniff, just knew immediately whether a child had been exposed to horses before. And if not, bite. <laughs> not hard, just like, you know how they do it? They just sort of nip on your shoulder. It doesn't really hurt, but it's terrifying, especially if you're a child. And Silver had more bad habits than you could imagine. He could turn his, his head around so far that he could just stare you down, just like with this terrible look and just... He, if, if you turned your back on him, he'd be on the ground rolling, trying to get the saddle off and break the girth strap. If, if you rode out away from the house far enough and then turned for home, we, uh, the, the farm that we were working was a long, narrow sort of a block, went way back. If you went too far, once you turned round, he just galloped to the home paddock. You couldn't slow him up. It, it, was, it was quite a ride, but there was no stopping him. Just boom, you just sat there down through the river and up the other side. Silver was, unfortunately, a terrible horse. So we've got Bonnie the cow, Silver the horse. Bonnie the cow had a calf, and the calf's name was Roger Ramjet. Which <laughs> So that, that immediately fills in the age of our children for you. You can picture the whole thing. Bonnie the cow, silver the horse, Roger Ramjet. So my job every afternoon was to climb on Bonnie the horse. No. <laughs> Bonnie the horse. No, climb on silver the horse, usually without a saddle because he'd only try and break it off anyway, so let's not bother with the saddle. And then bring Bonnie the cow and Roger Ramjet up through the house paddock and do that difficult thing of separating them because Roger Ramjet was not weaned and so he wants to be with Bonnie but you've got to separate them out. One day I was poking along on Silver the Horse following Bonnie the Cow and Roger Ramjet and all of a sudden Silver the Horse put his nose down onto the ground and took a big sniff of what I want to call Roger the rabbit, only that'll confuse us because we've already got Roger Ramjet. Let's just call it dead rabbit because that's what it was. A dead rabbit. Puts his nose down, takes a sniff of this dead rabbit and bucks like just and I fell off very heavily onto the ground and broke something or other and I ended up having to wear this plaster cast that went from here to here somewhere, like, just, it was the most terrible thing. And I had to wear it for, you know, you have to wear them for ages, these things. And my, our pastor was away and I was the youth pastor. And so I had to lead a number of services. And the only clothes thing that I could wear was a pair of overalls. I had really nice overalls, but they were overalls. And I put a jacket on top to make it look like I wasn't wearing overalls, but I was. <laughs> All of which... 
All of which is to simply say, weaning is a tricky business indeed. <laughs> that, that, really is, that really is the core of this message. You might not think that's true, but you watch, it is. Weaning is a tricky business. And David says, I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, that's not, that is not easy to do. But I'm going to encourage you this morning to do it, as David did. And in doing this, let me stop there and just turn back to the Bible. I won't try and summarise it yet. Let's keep working through it. We're Christians, aren't we? Yes. So we open the Bible from which end? The back. That's right. We open the Bible from the back. Let's do that and see. I was thinking about this. That's a, that's a metaphor that's losing currency, isn't it? Because you can't open an iPad from the back. See? Nothing there. How many people have got an actual Bible? Show of hands. How many people have got a screen Bible? It's about half and half, I reckon. See, things are changing. So while we still can, let's open it from the back and see what Jesus says about all this. John 14. My peace I leave with you. Sorry, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So these are, these are Jesus' words beginning to talk about peace. Peace is, inner peace, is one of the most beautiful things that you can experience, I feel. It, it, it eclipses almost, well, I think personally it eclipses every other experience in life, to, not, to be at peace deeply at peace with God, which of course then puts you at peace with everything else. It puts you at peace with the people you're with. It puts you at peace with everything. So that place of peace is the most glorious thing. And yet, it's not a thing that we frequently encounter, despite Jesus speaking so often about it. In fact, we all have within us an unweaned child which needs to be weaned. And it's the, it's the soul, it's the heart. We won't get too stuck on, on terminology, but let's, let's just say it's the, the inner being somehow. And haven't you noticed how it talks, how it chatters away inside, that voice within us, that, that relentless commentary that just keeps going and going and going? Um, it's often quite a judgmental voice, yeah? It, it judges. You find yourself judging, holding an opinion about everything and everybody, forming instant judgments about the people you look at, whether they're people you know or people you don't know, judging the people that are close to you, your family, relentlessly offering opinions. You don't, you, you're not asking it what its opinion is. It just keeps giving it. And, of course, 
frequently the voice within inside us, that chattering, ongoing tirade of language, judges ourselves. And we, what happens is that the longer you listen to it, the deeper the hole gets that you're in because this voice seems to very frequently be a negative one, pulling us down. It's, it's generally anxious as well, or can be. Not that all our thoughts are anxious, but, but anxious thoughts can become so, so prevalent and difficult to deal with. Anxiety about the past, fear of the future, regrets for what we once did, guilt about our past, the, the, the endless questions of what if, what if I'd done this instead of that, what if they had done that instead of this, and on and on and on it goes. And we wonder, I think at times, how do you quieten that voice? How did David get to a point where his heart within him was as quiet as a weaned child? Jesus says, peace I leave you, my peace I give. I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Let's just work through what Jesus says one sentence at a time. He begins by saying, peace I leave with you. God's peace is a really, really big theme in the whole Bible, but particularly in the New Testament. 15, no, 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 93. I looked it up. 93 times the word peace peace appears in the New Testament. And the gift of the peace of God is something that you find described so frequently throughout the New Testament. 15 of the 21 letters in the Bible, you know, the letter to the Romans, letter to the Corinthians, da, 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 15 of those begin with, uh, in the first few verses, begin with the greeting, grace and peace to you from our God, or words very, very much like that. And the, the idea that Jesus um, gives peace to us is just repeated over and over again. It's a gift. It's a gift that, that he imparts and it's his peace. He says, my peace I give to you. It's a very beautiful gift. Have you ever noticed in those letters that I mentioned, that the, the order is always the same. It always says grace and peace. It never says peace and grace. It's always grace and peace to you. That's really important, even though it's only a little language thing. It's really important because you cannot have peace without grace first doing its work. There is no, there is no peace until grace comes. Jesus gives us peace because he has first extended the grace of God and the forgiveness of God to our lives. And similarly, we then must extend grace out of our lives if we are to experience peace. So the order of those two little words is quite vital, and you'll see more about that as we move along to the next sentence. So the second thing that Jesus says is, I do not give to you as the world gives. My peace I leave with you. I do not give to you as the world gives. I think that means lots of things. But what it strikes me most clearly this morning is that the peace that the world gives is mostly external. 
So it's a beautiful thing, isn't it, to be driving along the road and to turn off to a lookout and have a look. Do you love to do that when there's a sign on the road that says look out? Look out! I wish that those signs would be a little bit more, they put them a few more kilometres early because I'm at least three quarters of the lookouts we've ever seen, we've driven straight past because it's like, look out, but you're already five kilometres past it by the time you register it. But it, if, you can, <laughs> if, you can, if you can get there, if you can get to the lookout, isn't it glorious? Picture yourself, um, you know where the, there's a lookout when you drive over the mountains towards... Mm, not Beechworth, what's the next one? Mount Beauty. And there's this, you know, halfway down, there's this tremendous lookout and you look over to Mount Bogong. Picture yourself there. Imagine a couple of birds circling up high. Forget that there's traffic behind you. There's no traffic. It's all gone. You can imagine the peace, can't you? And it's a beautiful thing. A cup of tea can be a beautiful, peaceful thing to do. Um, to listen to some music, to have a, a friend that you're, that you're with and your companionship is such that you don't need to chatter, you can just enjoy. There are so many ways that peace can come to us that are, that are external and it's not that they're wrong, they're good things, but they're quite fleeting, aren't they? It only takes one one truck to come down the hill behind you and the peace is shattered. Whatever you are enjoying, is, if you're sitting down having a cup of tea peacefully doing the crossword, a phone call, a phone call will upset that completely. The, the, the world gives us these things peacefully. Sorry, externally I meant to say. Jesus gives us peace internally. The peace of God comes to us from within, and that's a world of difference. The third thing in that, uh, that little um, verse from Jesus, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is the rub, if you like. Jesus gives us peace, but he also gives us an imperative when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled, it's almost in that that you can hear something that says, if you let it, your heart is going to get troubled. Your heart is going to, is going to trouble you. And I think that's true. And I think that that's what David is also saying. I have stilled and quieted my heart. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. It's like there's, there's an opportunity there for us to exercise some type of self-control over our heart. It's a response. Jesus gives us the gift, but he asks us to respond. And that's so commonly our relationship with God, isn't it? He holds out the gift to us, but, but we must respond to it. Our, our journey to salvation is the same. God forgives us and rescues us, but we must accept the forgiveness. We must place our hand in his hand in order to be rescued. And so God's peace fills the space that we make for it. 
David says the same thing. I've stilled and quieted my soul. Philippians 4, 6 is a very familiar verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a marvellous text? Do you see the similarity, though? Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. This verse begins by saying, do not be anxious about anything. And David has said, I have quieted and stilled my soul. So there's, there's, an, there's an imperative from God to us that we must take some action here. God's peace is not simply going to whip away all of our problems. We are in partnership with God. The thing that, the thing that God wants from us is the journey. He wants to be with us. We cooperate with him. God doesn't invade us and take over us. I once was, um, when I lived in Central Australia, there was a missionary who, to be honest, she used to really drive me mad, sort of. She was a single missionary who lived in a little, a little hut made of just a little mud brick hut in the desert. And she, for our Bible studies, which were every Friday night, as I remember, she always brought a little plate of cakes or biscuity sort of things. And they, look, they all looked different but tasted identical. You know, <laughs> you know that sort of some had icing and some had sprinkles and some were wedge-shaped and some were square. But they tasted exactly the same, which had as much to do with the quality of the flour that we had in our, because I worked in the shop and the flour was not great. And so that's probably what it was. But anyway, that's the sort of person she was. And I remember one night she told this story at Bible study. And she said that they had been driving back from Kalgoorlie. I lived in Warburton, which is a thousand kilometres northwest of Kalgoorlie, very long road through. In those days, it was unsealed. It was pretty rough sand dune country. And she... Um, the brakes weren't working properly and a policeman pulled up behind them and was able to help. Didn't I don't think he pulled them over, but anyway, the policeman was able to help with the brakes that weren't working. And when the policeman was looking under the car to find out what was wrong with the car, looking for the brakes, he noticed that the petrol tank was swelling up. Now, this is something that occasionally happens in the desert, petrol boils. I've seen jerry cans that are puffed out round because they've been in the sun and the petrol boils. It's a dangerous situation because if it were to crack, you could have a, an enormous gush of petrol vapour and spray and whatever. And so he suddenly saw that this petrol tank underneath her um, Holden station wagon, I think it was, was swelling up. So there was something blocking the fuel and whatever. And, and she was saying, hallelujah, God made the brakes fail so that the policeman could find the petrol tank. And me, I was 18 and cynical that week anyway. <laughs> I wasn't always cynical, but that week I was. And I'd already had a plate, you know, I'd tasted the, the biscuits that always taste the same. So that hadn't really put me in the very helpful mood. <laughs> and I was just cynical and I thought, that is ridiculous. 
If God can make the brakes not work, why couldn't he just fix the petrol problem? What? It just seems to me so dumb, really. So you can imagine me sitting in the corner of the Bible study while all this is happening thinking, this is just dumb. It's a real 18-year-old stance, isn't it? And it wasn't until I was an adult, which didn't happen for a while, <laughs> later than most, <laughs> and it's, it's suddenly, I don't, know, I don't know in what context, but it suddenly I pictured the scene and I saw in, a, in, a, in an instant that it was not, that it wasn't stupid, that it wasn't dumb the way I used to think it was, this story. It obviously troubled me because I was still carrying the story around in my head years later when I suddenly discovered I was an adult. And I saw that the point of the story is that God walks with us. God, God is with us. What, what he wants is not to fix the petrol tank under the car without us knowing. He wants to walk with us in our situation, in our problems. He wants to hold our hand and be with us. It's the journey. It's the journey that God desires. And truly, it's the journey that I desire. And so when God, and you know, I went, I was, I had the opportunity to be in Warburton in 2008 when the, the um, translation of the, the whole Bible was completed and dedicated, a wonderful thing. Not, not the whole Bible, but a very, very large amount of it. And the, this missionary whose name was Thelma, that adds a little colour to the story as well, doesn't it? Thelma, and I was able to tell her a slightly modified version of this story. I didn't mention the, the biscuits. <laughs> whatever they were. I left that out. But I did tell her how I had thought it was such a... I, I, I did it in a nice way that was not offensive, I hope. And it was wonderful to be able to express that and apologise for my pre-adult take on the situation. Jesus invites us to receive the gift of his peace with with this injunction, do not let your hearts be troubled. I've heard it said that that's a command, that we mustn't let our hearts be troubled because Jesus has commanded us to be at peace. I don't think that's very helpful, really. I've heard it said of the Philippians text too, do not be anxious, therefore if you are anxious, you're sinning. But anxiety is a terribly hard thing to deal with. And for some people, of course, anxiety becomes um, a medical issue that needs significant support. And that's not exactly what I'm talking about here. I'm talking more about the, the anxiety that's familiar to us all. And the, the path through that is not simply for God to sort of miraculously heal us. I used to be anxious, but now I'm not. It's a journey that we walk with him in. And in that journey, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. The obstacle to receiving God's peace is our own noise. And I've, I've often thought that if, I, I believe this is true, that if you, if you haven't heard or felt God personally, you only need to be quiet and you will. 
but that doesn't mean you can just go home and, okay, I'm going to be quiet. No, it didn't work. It's a far deeper work than that. This is big. Weaning your soul is a tricky job indeed. Remember, silver the horse. It's not a simple thing. You may have experienced times in your life where your own inner noise, the, the incessant, demanding, unweaned anxiety is overwhelming. We also live in an era where we are overwhelmed by noise. I heard this week the inventor of the, the mobile phone. Did you know that the first mobile phone <laughs> was built in 1973, 50 years ago? It's amazing, isn't it? And he was interviewed at the age of 94 and he says, he said in a BBC interview this week, he said, I don't know whether the world knows how addicted they are. And we are just bombarded with noise. We have screens everywhere. We look, I've got one right here and you've got one in your pocket. I've got three of these. I, I've got a little one, a medium-sized one and a big one like Goldilocks. They're everywhere. Our world... It's hard to be quiet, but it's essential that we do. Simple habits like reading your Bible every day are vital. But I'd recommend that you find things to do in silence. Look for tasks that allow you to be quiet. Turn things off. In your home, in your, in your car, when you're at work, turn off the radio, the whatever. Be very, very careful of the traps of social media and the screens that we've already talked about. But go further than that. Take on some deliberate practices of, of silence. Jesus instructs us to pray by saying, go into your inner room, go and say the Lord's Prayer. But there's hardly any words in the Lord's Prayer. Then what do you do? I think it's an invitation to quietness. A dozen times in the Psalms, we're reminded to wait for the Lord. It says it over and over again. Wait for God. Be quiet. Be still. Wait for God. Begin to cultivate a deliberate habit of quietness in front of God. Go to pray and, and be silent before God. Psalm 62.1 says, For God alone my soul in silence waits. And I've journeyed down this path more as the years pass of setting time often daily to be nothing but quiet with God to pray but in silence, not with a shopping list of requests, but to meet God in silence. As we come to the end, let me read to you something that Henry Nouwen wrote, that, uh, an author that I enjoy reading so very much. He gives us this instruction. We have to dwell with Jesus. We have to dare to just be there with him. Be very quiet. Be very still. Just dwell. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, I want to dwell with you. I want to be your friend. You are not a servant. You are part of my household. Visit me. Stay there. Spend time with me. Dwell with me. Now and writes, to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to say, this half hour, I'm going to dwell with Jesus. I know I will be distracted. I know I will have a hundred thoughts and a million things to do. But I know that you love me and invite me. And even when I am antsy and anxious, I'm going to dwell. Be with him and listen. Listen to the one who invites you. Be quiet. Be like a child dwelling in the house with her mother and father. Be there. 
a half an hour a day. Is it possible? Is it possible for half an hour to simply be still, sit there and do nothing, waste time with Jesus? This is what love does. I love that quote from now and and I think that that it, it, it echoes David who says, I've quieted and stilled my soul. And into that quiet stillness, Jesus brings his peace. As we finish, let me read just a couple of other scriptures and uh, then we'll hand back over to our musicians who will close the service for us. The theme of peace pervades scripture. I've said already that it's a dozen times in the, in the Psalms and many other things in the Psalms about dwelling in God's presence. Isaiah 30 verse 15 says, In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. I've mentioned already Psalm 62, For God alone my soul in silence waits. David finishes his psalm in verse 3 of 131, Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. At the end of the psalm, he reminds us that it's God alone that we need. It's God that we need. It's not, it's not quietness we need. It's God. But it's God who gives us grace and peace. It's God's peace, his gift, that will fill the quietness that we make for him. Amen. <laughs>